Esther and Jas, and we are the Well Spoken Tokens. This is, a pod- <laughs> this is a podcast that tries to fix the cultural sector, and we try and make it a little bit more inclusive for everyone. Um, and today, I'm very excited because we're going to be welcoming our guest this week, who is Simon... Why can I not say your name? Sorry, I'm going to start again because I'm terrible. I'm a terrible human. <laughs> Demacy, why can't I say that? Right, okay. okay. <laughs> Five, four, three. Hi, we're Esther and Jas, and we are the Well Spoken Tokens. Woo! This podcast tries to fix the cultural sector and tries to make it a little bit more inclusive for everyone. Today, we've got a wonderful guest that we're excited to have with us today. It's Simon Demacy and we're going to welcome you. Thank you for joining us and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background please. Hi Jess and Esther, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, yeah, um, I work at the moment at uh, Welcome Collection, Library Experience Engagement Manager, but uh, yeah I grew up on the Isle of Wight um, with my parents and my brother um, and um, well, don't ask me about contact tracing apps, by the way, because I haven't, I haven't got access to that. Um, but my mum does, and uh, I'm sure she'll be able to pass on some useful info. Um, so I grew up there. I then went to university in London. I um, studied history um, and then did a few kind of jobs here and there. Um, worked for the National Archives for a while and then joined Welcome Collection. Um, my parents are from Ethiopia um and uh you know we kind of grew up obviously away from a lot of people in our community on the isle of wight but um you know we're largely welcome there anyway so that's that's kind of where i call home uh and that's where i'll go when i what for christmases and stuff like that but um yeah here i am now in sunny east london so nice to be here on the podcast weirdly like heartwarming that you're living where i'm from (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, just, nice. I'm just taking care of it Jess while you're in Manchester thanks um yeah I'm just impressed that you've got a house and garden I think that's good work Simon like seriously <laughs> that's, my, that's my partner's work I've got nothing to do with it um oh hey so today we're going to talk about climbing the ladder in the, the land sector so it's galleries libraries archives and museums um imposter syndrome and touching on how microaggressions can exacerbate uh, imposter syndrome. Um, so before we start, I'm just going to give two quick definitions, like one for imposter syndrome and one for microaggressions. So imposter syndrome, also known as imposter phenomenon, in the word I can't read, and fraud syndrome, or imposter experience, is a psychological pattern in which one doubts one's accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. And a microaggression is a term used for a brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioural or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory or negative, uh, prejudicial, God, why can't I read today? Dyslexia! Uh, Slights and insults towards any group, particularly marginalised groups. Um, So psychological research shows that microaggressions can lead to feelings of imposter syndrome, more, more so in underrepresented groups such as LB, LGBTQIA, fame, disabled, neurodivergent, and also women have a completely different experience than these two. So this results in it being a, even able to even harder to climb the ladder. So 
there's feelings of doubts that most people do have uh, on a regular basis or a semi-regular basis are magnified under the daily microaggressions that we might face. Um, so what are your feelings about this guys? What are you thinking? Anything you want to expand on? Yeah, so, start with um, guess? <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to share some, some thoughts um, in general, maybe. Um, and thanks for inviting me on to talk about uh, climbing the greasy pole of management in the glam sector, um, which I think is probably worth kind of thinking about on its, uh, on its own, um, because um, I'm sure lots of people don't think about it like that. At least people in management probably don't, even though uh, <laughs> that is my, maybe how other people describe it. Um, and um, I, I hadn't done any management of any people or teams um, before I was at National Archives. I only started about five, five years ago. And um, up until then, I just completely assumed it had nothing to do with me. Like um, that was something for other people. Um, I neither had the skills or experience or interest in like managing people. And I thought it was just something for, for someone else. Um, and it's only because um, of certain circumstances at the time that um, encouraged me to kind of like apply for a role that became available. Um, at the second time of asking, like they didn't fulfill it. And then um, I thought, well, you know, I might as well have a go now. Um, and I was successful. And then um, it's taken me in a really different direction to probably what I was thinking. Um, and I guess the interesting thing that, well, the thing that might be interesting uh, for people is just you, a lot of people might find themselves in that situation of either seeing an opportunity that they think, oh, I'm not qualified for that, or um, that's not something that I've imagined doing in this sector or anywhere. And just probably take a second to think about whether that's really true or um, if it's just kind of part of a narrative you might have told yourself or have had told for you, um, then, and then maybe make that decision or see what the circumstances are. I guess the thing that I've learned, if anything, in managing like since then, is that um, my big assumption was that you had to do it in a certain way, that you had to be a certain kind of person or act in a certain kind of way. And that's really put me off like being like a directive person, telling people what to do, things like that. It's just, just not really my nature, but um, you, you end up kind of having to do some things like that from time to time. But um, I think another thing is just that it um, doesn't necessarily need to be that way. You can totally be yourself in it. And I think especially for black and brown people, that's actually quite a big thing to try and comprehend and think about how to apply it in some of these circumstances. And I think it's one of those things where if you haven't had a manager that looks like you and behaves in a certain way and all your managers maybe don't look like you and behave in a certain way, that's the sort of template of management that you're aware of, that maybe your industry or your sector is aware of. Mm. And so if you diverge slightly from that kind of style, then it's discouraged and thought of as non-managerial even when it is. I know because I'm quite gregarious, I'm quite outgoing, and people really like me and get on with me. I have actively been told in the past when I've gone for management roles that, you know, it is a disadvantage that people like me because apparently that means I can't make the tough decisions, I 
can't do the things required. They are absolutely not one and the same thing. They are different skills that I bring to it. I can absolutely manage and I have done, but the things that I've done, people don't necessarily see as valuable as um, other things when they don't fit that standard mould. And I think that's one of the things where I've tried to progress. And I've had interviews where I've gone for that next step up and um, I went through a phase where I really felt my career was plateauing um, and those were the kind of responses I got even though in my actual performance um, I had a really bad experience and it was a horrible experience with one role that I went for and someone in the HR department had accidentally left um, the ratings for the people who um, had gone to interview so I'd seen next to my initials that I'd got a certain score and the person who actually got the job did get a score higher than me but it was only two marks above me and both of us were miles ahead of the rest of the pack so in that I was really happy I was really confident actually you know what I was nearly there I was new um, I'd nearly got this job but then going forward out of that I still worked with these people and I still got treated like I wouldn't have been capable of making those decisions when I tried to put forward ideas it was still like well you're not the boss you can't really implement that you've not got that kind of level and that level of understanding but from my interview that didn't come across and then I heard that one of the trustees when they heard about the appointment of this person said well at least she looks the part I very much do not look like the person who had the job before and I don't look like the person who got the job and that person has done great things with the job um, I would have done similar things in some respects I would have done very different things in other respects but the attitude of the organization to me was very much you're lucky to be in that pool when actually nothing I did demonstrate that they're still doing things I implemented to this day um, and so that experience was really really upsetting and you talk about imposter syndrome I am very lucky to be quite confident and it did really get me down for a time but then I just pulled myself together and I was like you know what I am actually really good I know I can do these things people being surprised when I'm good at doing those level of things it it bothers me but I am now secure enough to say well actually I don't know why you're surprised I've been doing this job for a really long time you should be surprised I'm not at a higher level and I'm surprised I'm not at a higher level but then I'm also not surprised because I haven't been given the same opportunities because people don't see me in that same way and that I find really frustrating motherfucker yeah, it was the the person who made the comment. I was deeply not surprised because they've also made other comments that aren't particularly great. Um, but after all the work I put into the application, into my presentation, into everything I'd done to get that job, and knowing that I'd actually done really, really well, I did not deserve to. Like they didn't deserve me, and they haven't got me anymore, and that's fine. Yeah, that's and I think I, think I had what to you're... move on. I think what you're saying is like actually such a um, such an indicative kind of tale. Not, I mean, the it's a shocking thing that you're you're describing to us. But then also the fact that you've just had to kind of go away on your own and almost rebuild your own confidence and your own sense of what you can achieve, and actually trying to separate that from the stuff that is fed back to you, whether it was meant to be or not. It's actually, and that's it. And that's the feedback hard. I got. I actively asked for feedback from the interview because I was like, "Well, this is my career path," and people talked about doing it, and it never actually happened. And I pushed it, and I pursued it, and it never happened. And it's like, 
why aren't you able to give me constructive feedback from that? Because if I'd have been another person and the only feedback I'd got from that is hearing someone going, well, she just doesn't look the part for working in a heritage organisation, that says a lot. That's why I wanted to link together imposter syndrome, climbing the ladder and microaggressions, because I think they are all so closely linked together when you're from a marginalised group. Um, I'm so sorry that happened, Esther. That's and the worst thing is like I'm not even surprised. And no, I mean it. That's what's so sad. But and that's it. I've taken it away. It's motivated me to do things like this. It's motivated me to really encourage others to kind of go for it and also ignore those voices because yeah. there are times that's the only thing you're going to hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's incredible resilience of your part. And I think the question that I you often need to think about is like, what about people who aren't going to be able to recover in that same way? Uh, and I mean, I've not had an experience like that. I can't, I can't um, compare with. But it is really interesting just talking about like microaggressions because um, certainly um, when, I when I started managing people, and in the whole time I've been managing people, that kind of self-doubt and self-questioning just kind of goes through the roof, really. Because in the same way that many black and brown people when and other marginalised people, when just, going, when just going about life and you interpret, you're trying to interpret interactions and trying to think what, what was driving that, what, what do I learn from that? Was that aggressive? Was, was it me being overly sensitive? All that sort of thing you can also just apply in managing people. So, you know, is, is someone, does someone think that um, you're just not very good at your job because you're not that good? Or is it because they don't think that you should be in that position? Or is it because um, they're not used to having to um, listen to a person of, of uh, you know, a black or brown person in a, uh, in a position of authority? and that's the first time they've ever seen it, it mm -hmm. it's it's not going to be that unique it's going to happen a lot of t a lot of the time so then you know i i i think i've got just a huge amount to learn and there's a lot more that i, I want to say about this but in that respect trying to think about how um people might be interpreting your presence or your actions it's actually a very complicated thing because you're having to try and unpick quite a lot of potential um, different different interpretations. Yeah, and depending on your or how you identify in the various different underrepresented groups that there are in the glam sector, there might be so those questions are multiplied for every every under underrepresented group that you're part of that is visible in your appearance or in your persons. Um, and it's the coin flip of unearned confidence as well because you're up against people who act like they know everything as unearned confidence because they have not proved it and you've got to do that extra amount of work as well because we're taught from a very young age that we have to like yeah. it's it's impossible to unlearn all that in such a short space of time but the thing that was crossing my mind simon is you were just speaking about like do these people not think I'm good at my job because of this reason? All I could think of was like, maybe the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is their opinion needed? 
is their opinion is, are they someone whose opinion we trust and we care about uh, well, or is it an opinion that we need to care about like for example if it's someone above you because you're trying to get a job or but then even then if they're a piece of shit then then you don't need to care about their opinion and you don't want to work there i have a lot of feelings about this which i'm trying to figure out as mm. i'm speaking and this is it <laughs> i've not got jobs because i don't have enough management experience but I've had really bad managers. They've got management experience and they're still terrible about it and they will still progress. And it's like, I am better at management in some areas. And again, there are things I do need to learn and did need to grow, grow with. But actually, if you're, you're never going to give an opportunity to someone because they don't see management in those other ways in which the you manage situations. Mm -hmm. It's really hard and you have to lead them down that path. And yeah face those knockbacks so and you know there are more knockbacks that you face that yeah. might be something no manager you've ever had had to experience like I suspect none of the managers I've had have had that experience that I've been through and yeah, yeah it took me a minute but I came through it I don't think they will have gone through that and mm -hmm. I think that makes me a better person and a better person at doing my job um and so you know it's just that openness in people's recruitment in being able to really envisage other kinds of things as being what they seem to be looking for in their job spec. I mean, it's a competitive job market and the heritage, the glam sector is very, very narrow. You know, there are lots of people going out there for these jobs and positions. So yeah, being able to set yourself apart but also being cherished for the things that set you apart. I think it's really important when people are looking at recruiting things as well. I think it's so interesting that they thought that you being a people person would make you not want to make hard decisions. Cause that's almost like, it's hard, how do I explain it? Is that true like, or is that good, just what they said and their perception yeah, as well? But because you're like a friendly person, maybe they, they perceive that as you being soft. I guess, or indecisive, when actually those are two completely separate things. Yeah. They can't. And, and I do get indecisive a lot, and I'm not indecisive, but I am consultative in a way that I appreciated when I've worked with other people who like to consult at all levels. I mm. like to build that into my practice. Um, and so I do genuinely people think, I do sometimes come across people who see that as like, oh, can't you make a decision on the like, No, I just want to hear what other people think. Then I'll take my decision, but I won't take my decision just as an autonomous thing. And yeah. I'm not going to apologise for that. Yeah, exactly. That's your style. And that's probably a lot more inclusive than a lot of the styles. Well, it means you have to train less down the line because people are working in a way that responds more because it, they've been part of building it. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, you said that this is something you do. So if you're doing that, then why don't we just build that in at the beginning rather than kind of going, oh, yeah, and it's a nice idea to add that in. I think it's, we discuss on occasion, you know, this idea about what collaboration and empowered collaboration looks like. And I think because I like empowered collaboration, people who it don't like empowered collaboration <laughs> will give a link to um, how you can learn more about empowered collaboration through chat. But yeah, I think Copyright. people who are threatened by the idea of, hearing other voices are threatened by how I like to manage. I think I've said this before, um, but the things that I found really useful is, um, I kind of want to make this into a t-shirt. 
is I think what would a mediocre white man do? And normally the answer is go for it or say it or do it and generally don't give a shit about the outcome. Which is obviously a very privileged position that I'm in. Um, although I have done stuff in the past and then like fully panicked that I'm gonna like lose a job because I've called someone out. But I would still do it in a heartbeat because I'd rather do that than sit on my hands. Um, and I think that's the privilege of age as well and being where we are at in our careers as well. Like the impact of us being the person to say a thing isn't quite as much, you know, when you're like at the proper, proper bottom rung of your ladder, you really can't say anything because like you, you are really scared of that next Oh no, that's when I started saying stuff because no one gave a oh, crap. Like you. no one listened to me. It was like shouting into the void. And then all of a sudden it got to the point where like people are actually noticing that I was like calling stuff out. And then that's when I would be like, someone would have a word or whatever. Um, and then I was like, oh my God, people are actually listening. Maybe I should be a bit more careful about how I say things rather than I can still say it, but maybe in a more like professional way. Um, and then I harnessed that into some other stuff. And then like eventually intersectional glam happened, mostly out of frustration, anger and revenge. Yeah. So what's most of you side then? Great drivers. <laughs> um... <laughs> What's motivated me? Well, actually, I mean, I think um, what you were saying is so interesting, uh, which is one like really, I'm trying to, I've been trying to get my head around that, that kind of feedback that you got, because it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Um, in the, the whole, like, what the thing I said at the start was like, actually, I feel like you can just learn about like leading in the way that you are comfortable with that reflects you. And actually that will be fine. You will have to try and do things out of your comfort zone, obviously, you know, from time to time, but actually approaching things in the way that you are comfortable with is only, the only way you'll be able to sustain it or be any good at your job. Um, and obviously creating collaborative atmospheres and, uh, it, it, and including people's opinions and voices is crucial. Um, not just in our sector, but in any job, I'd have thought. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't add up uh, that someone would give feedback to say that that is a detrimental factor that will hold you back from making the tough decisions because, of course, you can still do that and that will be difficult in any context, but actually by collaborating up until that point, there's a chance that people will understand it a bit more. I don't know that that's a really interesting that's a really interesting thing but in terms of like my my kind of driver I think um I think I've kind of tried to think I've tried to think about things being a reflect a reflection of how I want to engage with the world so trying to trying to include create an inclusive environment is really important and I'm not going to pretend that you can always achieve it um but that's definitely one of my key drivers. And uh, you'll always be working within a context that is broader than you and yourself and your team, for example. So like, there's, there's always a lot of things going on. Um, what, I've, what I've really had to learn though, is like, it's this, is this thing where, it's a kind of like lived and learned experience 
kind of dichotomy that a lot of us will be able to appreciate, I think. I told you how I grew up on the Isle of Wight. So obviously I'm growing up in a, I grew up in like a uh, predominantly white uh, community, like hugely. Um, Very apt name. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, although white means man. So Isle of Wight just means Isle of Man, confusingly. Don't, don't report that to the Isle of Man. They'll get their three leg things going in our direction. <laughs> Um, but like, um, the, yeah, um, so I, you learn how to engage with the world in a certain context. And so I can't, you know, we talk a lot about privileges, minor, you know, my dad is a doctor. I grew up in like a very comfortable middle-class environment. Um, I'm able to potentially join the well-spoken tokens in that kind of definition. I'll be able to, you know, talk my way out of situations Definitely. and, you know, that sort of thing, hit the right kind of um, language in the right kind of situation, because I understand how that works. Um, at the same time as also trying to think, well, I actually want to change this world, right? Because you want to have a, you know, in the most broad sense, better representation. I'm not going to say representation is everything, but I'm just going to use that as an example. And that, and that will hopefully lead to a, a more just uh, sector and therefore a more just society. That's got to be the aim, right? Um, so what I've found when I've, since like being a manager of teams and people is actually that dichotomy is even harder to try and overcome because I'm trying to think I'm end up second guessing each part of it so I'm like okay what am I what am I doing when I'm having this kind of conversation or trying to organize the team in this sort of way am I using the um kind of uh this the structure of um you know whiteness that I've learned through school and higher education or am I trying and, and if so, how do I lessen it so it's actually not a, I'm not just repurposing something. Um, at the same time as also recognizing that my own experience and how I grew up is also valid. I can't yeah. like yeah. disavow that and I can't pretend to not to be someone different. Um, so I guess when when I when I, when Jasmine invited me on to talk about what would be useful, I was just like, you know, self doubt, ma massive amount of self doubt that come with managing. But actually, every time I learn more about it, it's like, oh, it's another it's a little more, a uh, little more self doubt there to try and get my head around. But ultimately, if you kind of, I found myself kind of situating myself in that. So I'm kind of like, well, all of those are skills, I guess. Yeah all of that ability is is useful in any workplace and um that means that you can actually engage with people in a multiple in multiplicity of ways which of course when you manage lots of people is like vital yeah um, yeah because not everybody and you've got that legacy of achievement in a different way everyone's going to need to be managed in a different way so like that's what i find so interesting about like management in general like you can have a style that's fine but it won't suit everyone in your team for you to have that style so simon what you're saying about having all these different ways and these different like things in your tool belt then that's great because then depending on your team you can just figure out what works for each person 
like some some people might really love a deadline and might really need one to like get them you know get that pressure on or whatever and some other people might be so efficient they get it done straight away and you don't need to do that for them like in the most simplistic way i can think of i am not a manager so i don't know what the hell i'm talking about but you know like you as do. someone who's been managed <laughs> that's my take on it esther what were you gonna say um well there's that legacy of achievement as well because like you've done stuff and then you're building on it and you're learning and you're evaluating and you're learning and you're evaluating and you're talking about second guessing but it's also sort of just putting more thought into it and I think that's something that quite a lot of people don't always do and this is one of the skills that you bring to your management that you are putting that extra level of thought into how you're interacting and how your next project's going to be better and I think some people can sometimes rest on their laurels and just be like well I'm doing it I'm following the 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 framework the pattern and that's how it goes and yeah I've got this done and I'll be self-congratulatory and there's nothing wrong with being proud of your achievements but also that extra step that extra level I think Mm -hmm. is you know being able to say yeah I did this I did that really well that really work that might not have worked so well um and yeah i think things are just more interesting when you have a multitude of voices in them and i think sometimes i'm just i will sometimes just sit back and go yeah but you could have made that so much cooler so easily just by doing that one thing in a different way um so yeah i just find it really fascinating how you know people will kind of sit there and go "Ah, are you sure is that really something we want to do is that a little bit too ambitious and sort of pat people down and like no i think you know if you can be elevating people that's something that's really special and the microaggression thing i remember when you were talking about it as being whether intentional or unintentional unintentional the way you feel it when you hear it it doesn't matter whether they were intending or not intending to do it you still feel it and I think that's where people can sometimes get defensive when you call them out on those things where they're like, okay, but did you actually listen to what I said? Because that can get, that can be an area of tension sometimes, I think. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, we're going to have a quick break right now and we'll be back with more from Simon and Esther and myself in a minute. Thank you for listening. Hi, every, hi everyone, just wanted to say thank you for listening and give you an update on what we've got going on over here at Well Spoken Tokens and Intersectional Glam. So first off, the Intersectional Glam conference has been moved to August 2021. Tickets are available on Eventbrite and the link will be in the show description. I've also created three training sessions so far. These are available on intersectionalglam.org. We have online training for unconscious and implicit bias training for GLAM professionals. We have diversity, inclusion and intersectionality training for GLAM professionals and also trans awareness training for GLAM professionals. Coming out in August 2020, we will also have anti-racism training, uh, which will all be available on the website intersectionalglam.org. We have also created a tip jar. Uh, We want to make this podcast as elegant and beautiful and well-rounded as possible so if you have any spare coinage please send it our way and we can make sure to make this podcast the best that we possibly can thank you so much all links will be available in the show description enjoy the rest of the show
something that I have experienced during this corona lockdown that we're currently in is, oh my goodness, there are no microaggressions in my life anywhere. Obviously, I'm just at home. And like, my confidence is like through the roof. Is this what it would be like if I wasn't like microaggressive at every day? Would I just like <laughs> be fully in love with myself all the time? Genuine question. Like, this is the only good thing that has come from this situation. It's like, I'm like, oh, my skin's amazing because I have all this time to moisturize. I'm like, oh, my ideas are great. Sometimes I doubt them because it's good too, because you have to question yourself and then you grow as a person. And these are training packages that I'm going to be putting out to the world. So I want them to be perfect. On but, what website will they be going, Jess? Intersectionalglam.org. <laughs> I finally bought the actual domain name. It's no longer a WordPress blog. Yay! <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> but I genuinely like, I don't know if, how, what your guys' situations is at the moment, but I think it's something worth thinking about because it's something that I definitely have been thinking about. Um, there's certain aspects of my personality or my my self-image that continuously get sort of told to be quieter. I always get told that I laugh too loud. But my response... that's relevant to your work. Um, my response to that used to be just to be quiet. And now I just go, I'm full of joy and skip away. Because yeah. if that is genuinely upsetting you, I I don't laugh massively loudly all day, every day. It's normally at the end of the workday or right at the beginning of the workday when I'm talking to someone. I've even had people tell me that they know when I'm in the building because they hear me laugh. And the saddest thing that someone has ever said to me is like when I was walking out of work one day and my friend was like, oh, I didn't know you were in because I didn't hear you laugh today. And I was like, oh my God, I've just had the, like, I can't believe I didn't laugh even once today. I need to go home and like watch a funny movie or something because this is not a good situation where you don't laugh at least once in a day. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's really strange to just be like, okay, none of that is coming at me. So what would my self-image and my self-esteem and my confidence be like if none of that was coming at me? And I just think it's so fascinating and it's impossible to, to, to actually create that scenario because it's not going to happen uh, once we can hopefully be in the aftertimes and maybe be back at work and maybe be doing other things. Um, it's going to be there again and it's just going to be something we're going to have to deal with and get exhausted from and talk to our friends about but i do genuinely like in my little head i'm like oh what would the world be like without microaggressions how confident well, it's interesting jess because yeah i mean we we will go back to normal in lots of ways and then of course all the bad things of normal will come back as well but um i guess we're all thinking at the moment is about like what what we're making of this weird situation being at home and things like that and some of us me included quite like it actually um you know touch wood not being too badly affected at the moment by what's going on but um what we'll all learn is that we actually need different things uh from 
life and uh, there'll be different things that we'll need we'll start demanding of of employers or uh, workplaces and things like that when we go back I mean it's not going to be easy for everyone obviously I understand that um, but if it's a case of thinking about how working from home is feasible for a lot of people at the moment not everyone obviously then um, what does your demand around that look like I mean do you just try and work from home once a week because actually you need that to recover from all the things you've just been describing. Um, can your workplace support that? Um, that will be up to them, but you would hope that they would be able to appreciate that actually you not having your energy is not helping them. Uh, mm. But that's, that's, all, that's one of the many, what's the world gonna be look like? We're gonna look like questions that we don't know, but um, I think learning about what we all need is actually something that this period is such an interesting like thought experiment almost for those of us who are working at home about what it looks like and feels like compared to the usual day whether it's the commute or uh, the microaggressions that you're describing or, or the microaggressions that happen during your commute <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, so I think we've covered that really intensely. So we're going to move to our next segment, which is our pop culture reference of the week. So as I have mentioned in the past, I watch far too much television, far too many movies. Um, and I, but I do think it's a really interesting way of sort of illustrating some things that we discuss or seeing, you know, where things have been positive or negative um, and just seeing it sort of illustrated and articulated through pop culture. So I'm going to kick off this time because normally I start with everybody else, but I'm going to kick off with mine. So uh, one of the creators that I absolutely love is uh, Issa Rae, who created Misadventures of an Awkward Black Girl. And she also created what became a HBO series called Insecure. And um, I absolutely, absolutely love that show. And it's really great at illustrating those things in that office workplace. She works in a really kind of like... Um, in the web series she works at a place called Gutbusters, and even better in the tv show she works at a place called we got y'all and the manager there is a white woman who is incredibly tone deaf um for comedic effects but actually you know what there are some workplaces where these people exist um so yeah insecure um there and mrs ventures an awkward black girl there is i think it's the second episode is called the job and it's just some some of the most comedically hideous things i've ever heard a person say you know um about you know black people in the workplace and then yeah uh, there's an episode in season three of Insecure where they have a meeting and they talk about the logo for We Got Y'all and people start bringing up all of the issues around like having this urban slang thing, how it's a bit white savory and all of these things. Um, and it's the defensiveness of the woman who's playing the manager, I think, is uh, incredibly telling. That's my pop culture, microaggression, uh, yeah, reference. A so great soundtrack Simon, on that series as well. Oh, it is amazing. And just using all black artists, it's, oh, it's absolutely fantastic show. Um, and more people need to watch it. 
So what about you, Simon? Did you have okay, one? Okay, so I firstly uh, misunderstood uh, the, the brief. So what I got, go confused with was, the brief. I got confused with your two uh, features. So what I did is I picked a Mighty White from pop culture. <laughs> Dude, that works for us. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so um, and I've, I figured because he passed away a few, a couple, only three or four years ago, I want to give a shout out to Rod Temperton, uh, who's a music writer uh, uh, from Hull in East Yorkshire, or the East Riding of Yorkshire. I don't want to upset Yorkshire as well. Yeah. And he's just like, um, you know, regular white guy, uh, but just wrote, wrote some of the biggest bangers in, in, pop, in pop music history, including quite a lot of songs for Michael Jackson, including Off the Wall. And so I kind of wanted to use Off the Wall as an example to say, um, it's quite easy for those of us, black or brown or otherwise marginalized or more than one, to want to just stay on the sidelines in our workplaces, but you know, get off the wall and get, get involved as much as you can. Love it. That is magnificent. Oh wow, you stepped up to the brief. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. I, mis I misunderstood and changed it, but you know, that hey, works we're in, all that about reimagining things as well. Yeah, it's all fine. exactly. Oh, you're great. So, Jeff, your pop culture reference of the week. Um, I didn't have one until like two seconds ago. Okay, that's cool. Because I forgot. Because I'm super professional. Um, so I'm gonna do one that I think Esther and I had planned a little while ago, and then we maybe shelved, or maybe it was supposed to be for a different. Uh, episode, but I'm stealing it for this one. It's an episode of Blackish, um, when Dr. Rainbow Johnson um, goes to like a little cake gathering or something in the hospital, and she's at and she she does that anesthesia on people uh, during surgeries, and she wins an award, I think it is, and one of the other doctors comes over and says to her like something along the lines of like oh it's great that you could do that with your background because she just assumed that rainbow came from like a really poor background and you know had to like drag her way up to become a doctor literally based on the fact that she is a black woman well a mixed race woman presenting as a black woman so it's like it was very rude and it was happened in a room full of people but because all the other people in the none of the other people in the room were people of colour, they didn't clock on to the microaggression. Um, and then she the whole episode is about her going home and speaking to her family about it. Um, but I thought that was quite a quite a poignant one. And when you Google it, uh, it says something about how it's a clip that everybody from America, every a clip that every person in America should watch because it so well encapsulates um, the experience of it, because her face as well. When when he, she says that to her, is perfect, and the fact that she she freezes and she doesn't know what to say is exactly the response. And she went to an Ivy League school as well, and yeah. they're talking about oh oh you went to, it's like yeah I went to one of the best college and like the the O of it is kind of mm -hmm. like immense in that scene. Yeah, yeah. I remember us talking about that. There's also um an an episode where they're deciding what to name their child. The, the youngest child um, and there's a whole conversation where they're saying that the name that they want might be too black and that he might not get jobs based on the name 
Um, and I think that's a really good example as well. In the end, they, they decide to just say, they're like, no, this is what we want to name our child. This is what we're going to name our child. But it was very interesting that before the kid's even born, it's they're considering so many different aspects of their life and what they're going to experience in the future. Um, and it just really brings forth how it is at the forefront of so many people's minds and how there are people with privilege who won't, it won't even, they won't even consider, consider that being an issue. Cool. Great example. Thank that you. is a fabulous example. Cool. So what, we, why don't we just merge the segments now? Jess, do you have a mighty white? Yes, I wanted to give a shout out to everyone who supported me in August of 2019 after I spoke at the ARA conference in Leeds, York. Leeds. It was What's the ARA? Explain Archives, Archives and Records Association. Um, I spoke, um, I did a, a presentation there. Um, as one of the speakers and I was so pleased it was like completely the room was completely packed I did a lot of shameless self-promotion to the two days beforehand on Twitter and told everyone to come and it was my first proper big big girl presentation that I needed the support <laughs> and loads of people turned up and it was lovely so thank you to them then after the fact um I got a little I, well I got some Twitter abuse from a member of the ARA the public affairs officer um after saying after live tweeting saying that i was in a room full of 179 people and i was the only visible person of color there um and then he pointed out that i was wrong and then there was this whole thing and and it he was horrible and it ruined my whole saturday i cried a lot it was awful um but a lot of people from the area really had my back they told him that it wasn't on they told him that what he was saying was really rude and aggressive well it wasn't well yeah it was aggressive he said something about enjoying his first twitter spat which was really hurtful because obviously i was like completely crushed i really thought that we were achieving something great um but then then for like a couple of weeks after i would get um <laughs> deliveries to my workplace of biscuits and chocolate and flowers um Really, like anonymously from people who had either seen me speak or seen what happened and I, I work in a public building so it can you know stuff can easily be sent and it just was so lovely like it was really really it really helped and it's just such an after all the pain of like everything that happened is kind of like not really in the forefront of my brain now I'm really 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 grateful for all the support that everyone showed me because that's what I remember from that experience, not the bad stuff. Um, so I just want to say thank you to all those people. They might not all be white, who knows? But I mean, it's ARA, so it's likely. Um, but yeah, so thank you guys. I really enjoyed the biscuits and I shared them with all my work friends, so thanks. Cool. And Jess, that was... Um... Incredible, diff incredibly difficult situation to come through as well, um, and you, you know, you deserve a huge amount of credit for not being bowed down by that because it's that was very tough. It's very tough to be put in that kind of situation, but especially in public, 
so congratulations for not being put off and for doing what you do. Thank you. Like I say, revenge, rage and um, general uh, stubbornness. <laughs> and also that came out of an experience you already had with Gay RA where uh, you were at a conference and they were talking about inclusivity and again it was this space that was overwhelmingly white and you may have mentioned that and that may have caused a backlash uh, um, but again it, you take it, these experiences it, and make something really positive it's, yes i am an alchemist is what i do <laughs> you do i do I, I turn the well i just you know if someone's gonna make me feel bad about it i'm gonna somehow make money out of it I don't know. <laughs> that's like a weird, a really weird life plan. <laughs> but that's what's been happening so far. Oh. <laughs> it's a good life plan. I think it's working out for you. It's my, it's my, like, it's my thing. It's, it's my version of reparations. <laughs> Always reparations. I want my reparations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I was. Yeah, I'm never struggling with these because there are so many people in my life and who I see out in the world who uh, I really think are trying to do some really interesting things with representation. And I am going to talk about the Jewish Film Festival, which was an organisation I worked for. And many people may know there are only two female books of the Bible. They're both of the Old Testament. It's Esther and Ruth. Um, So Esther is a very good Jewish name. So I was working for the Jewish Film Festival. We had an event coming up and I was talking to people and they were like, yeah, and at the event, you've got to pick up your tickets from Esther, who's the administrator for the festival. And they're like, but how will we recognize Esther? And in the office, I was a Christian girl working for the Jewish Film Festival. And I think in all the times I'd worked uh, before I worked there, no one who'd had my job had ever been Jewish, so they'd already already been integrated, you know what I mean? Um, Possibly unintentionally, but um, it was really nice to know that I wasn't the first time they had someone who wasn't Jewish working for the festival. That was actually pretty cool. Um, And the range of films they had was great. They had this film called Faces, which I love, which is just massive pictures um, in Israel and it was like can you tell who's Israeli and who is Palestinian and no one could because you really can't just by looking at someone so they did lots of really interesting programming and they were always really welcoming to me and the first time I was asked the question how are they going to recognize me I being who I am was like yes I just go it will be flagrantly obvious and they were like no tell them you're the one without the nose and it was really great because <laughs> we had this event and people would come up, walk in, look, double take, and then just laugh. And it oh was so God, nice so to be funny. part of an organization where they were in on the joke. They understood <laughs> what it was like to be sort of stereotyped by one thing. And they made me feel really great. But also they were like, you know what? We're not going to make a big thing about you being black. We're just going to sort of do this other thing, um, yeah. like make you a part of this story. Um, and I only worked with them for one festival. Um, but like I said, the program was really interesting. The way they worked was really interesting. Um, they refused to be bullied politically, which given the name of the festival and some people's feelings about, you know, Zionism mm. and Israel, um, they came in for a lot of it. Um, but it was a really great experience being in a cultural organisation that was sort of a 
avowedly single focus organization but actually really pretty broad in who they engaged with who they employed who they worked with where they showed their screenings right um they worked at the trinity in east london which um is the place where the Talawa Theatre Company is based. They were making sure they were in lots of different areas of London for the festival. And it was a really beautiful experience sort of seeing that, you know, they'd thought about it, they'd grown and they'd driven this really inclusive practice in all areas of what they did. And I really enjoyed working with them. So yeah, they're my mighty wife. And I don't even know, because I know they've changed the makeup of the organisation. I can't even assume they're still all white. They might not be. And they certainly oh, weren't when I was there. Jewish people aren't typically white. Indeed. But we're talking about people who are elevating the other. That's true. They're elevating the <laughs> Oh, yeah. We can get into race it. and faith and, yeah. So and obviously they... Do you have any personal Mighty Whites that you want to share? Yeah, I, I, thanks. To, yeah, I've thought about a couple um, who I just want to give a shout out to. Um, one is, and, 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 and I was thinking about this, but I've got a lot of colleagues at Welcome Collection that I could say, but it's one of those things where if I was to list them all, it would take quite a long time. And then I would leave one off and they'd be like, oh, right, yeah, I see. <laughs> And then you'd be uh, like, yeah. I've been harboring hatred yeah. for ages. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about any of my current colleagues, however wonderful they are. Um, I want to mention um, a colleague, former colleague at the National Archives, Vicky Iglikovsky. She was a diverse record specialist there for quite a long time. And basically what her role has been has been to try and like um, talk about the records in that collection that uh, speak to marginalised uh, communities' stories. Um, and it's a pretty broad brief. And she's worked really, really hard on that over a long time. And I think that they've slightly changed it. So she's got a bit more support now. But um, what I was thinking a bit about some work that she did on the, um, on the Mangrove Nine a few years ago, um, which was really, really amazing. And I'll, I'll let her work speak for itself. So do go and look. Seek, seek it out on National Archives blog. I'll link to um, her in the description of this episode. Thank you, yeah. And um, just like having a really good energy and trying to approach things in the right way, but also in particular, National Archives, as you probably know, has got like the government's records. Uh, that's, that's the angle that that collection, that collection has. So it's a really, really kind of important piece of work to connect with people in the right kind of way. So you hear from all the perspectives of around the situation, not just the government or police records, which obviously in something like the Mangrove Nine is really important. So um, I think she's done a really, really great job over the years in trying to like engage with the right people in the right way. It's not always easy when you're representing such a big organisation that has obviously a lot of baggage on its own, mm -hmm. but um, to try and to try and approach people in the in a sensitive way. I think she's really, really good at that, and I just wanted to mention her. And another colleague is, um, who, who I don't work directly with, but is great, is uh, Alicia Chilcott, who um, I've done a little bit of work with, but she's um, done some amazing work on trying to essentially develop some protocols for UK archives to deal with um, their slightly problematic uh, approach to race and descriptions in, in catalogues and things like that. Um, she, she started off, um, by writing, well, she's written a really great um, master's thesis, which I think is available online. Um, but really, she's also kind of drawn on experiences in other parts of the world. So 
the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander research libraries network created some protocols. Uh, there's similarly been some uh, Native American protocols in North America, um, which involved a lot of interaction between um, indigenous communities and those countries kind of library and archives services. It takes a long time, like uh, the Australian one I think has been around since 1994. The UK doesn't have an equivalent and in many ways you can say um, that there isn't an equivalent uh, kind of indigenous community that you would talk about. It's a, slight, it's a, different, it's a different thing we're talking about. We're talking about the uh, racially marginalised, whether they were colonised or they are minority populations in the UK, whatever it might be. But there clearly needs to be a form of um, a protocol, essentially, to help people describe people in the right way. Um, so what Alicia did was do a lot of research into what UK archives are currently doing. <laughs> and, um, oh, mate, you don't have to tell me. I was on, uh, what's it called? Oh, why have I forgotten the name of the thesaurus that we use for labelling all of the... Never mind. Carry on. I agree with you. They still use the term handicapped. It is ridiculous. Ah. Keep going. Yeah. But, the, but and this is it. And um, um, and Alicia did a lot of work to kind of do that. And she talked really well about it in public. And we've tried to work on a few things, which uh, we, you know, actually no fault of our own have been struggled. We've struggled to kind of move them on to the next level. But she's done a really, really great job to talk about this. And I think, in terms of being a mighty white, those are my two. Yeah, fantastic! Thank you. We always love hearing about people who are doing really great things, and they yes. sound fantastic. And I'm going to follow them up. I have so much reading homework after every episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really good. So, uh, Simon, I was wondering if you. I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but in terms of like microaggressions, climbing the slippery slope, etc. Yeah. Do you have any advice? Like say you have someone uh, from a marginalized background who like wanted to climb the ladder. Uh, do you have any advice that you would give them or any advice you would give your younger self? Yeah, interesting question. Thanks. I hadn't thought about this before actually, but um, I think the thing that the thing that I the thing that I want to like talk about is I've got mixed feelings about because of the terminology that's used and um and I've kind of got like half forms half form thoughts about it but there's something that people often say which is about the superpowers that people from marginalized communities have and that might be something like your ability to talk to lots of different kinds of people, maybe to be a bit more considerate because if you've maybe grown up in a uh, like a multicultural home or like your home home world is very different to your professional world and you've got lots of abilities of being able to switch between the two and I know that code switching is like a thing as well. I think like sometimes people describe the positives of that, of that ability to maybe be more uh, con um, more considerate and and uh, maybe even more empathetic are described as superpowers. I don't necessarily think that that is the right term to use because I think that they are they are skills. And I think that if we were if you were writing a CV 
Uh, they're probably not the kind of skills that you would necessarily list on that CV, but they are real skills because they're, they're the way that you are able to communicate with lots of different kinds of people. We talked about this a lot today. Um, and it's really, really important to recognize that um, those of us who have, have uh, you know, are marginalized in, in our society, we, we're carrying a lot just from a lot of positive experience or in, uh, positive experience in terms of things that you could talk about in a workplace just from existing. And it's really important to try and think about that and to try and, if you can, gain confidence from that um, because it, it does mean a lot. What that doesn't do is answer some of the things that Esther was talking about earlier because you can, you can do all of that and still be shot down. And that, again, is not a reflection of you. That's a reflection of where other people are in their understanding of what, of what um, workplaces and especially workplaces in our sector need. Um, so in terms of advice, I would just ask people probably to think really deeply about what you actually do as a given. Uh, and actually try and work out how that relates to your to being a set of skills that would actually make you a really good uh, leader in the cultural sector um, and uh, you know maybe situate your confidence in that not necessarily what other people might be feeding back to you oh that's really good I agree I don't think it is a superpower it's it, it's learned some of it will be learned behavior in order to be accepted into the society that we were just thrown into that don't necessarily always accept us in the way that it's built. Even like seatbelts were created for tall white men. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is like taking blood that's based on a six foot white man. I'm not saying that everyone in my life is prejudiced because they're a bad person, I just mean like we grow up in this kind of world. And some of the reasons we be do become really empathetic um, is because we need to be, because we need to be aware of those small ways that people approach us and speak to us and deal with us so that we can see if there is any danger there, we can see if there is any microaggressions. So, and that is a, essentially what the ability to be compassionate is, it's noticing those things so it's like, a, it's, a, it's like a superpower if you're using it to make sure you're safe and you're, you're fine and people that you love are fine. But to call it a superpower when it's being used in a cultural sector for somebody else's gain would rub me up the wrong way a little bit. So I do know where you're coming from in terms of that. Yeah, the magical Negro. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a trope for a reason. I'm not doing much for my people, just like doing my yoga all the fucking time. But you know, <laughs> I love it. I also have a huge like a hanging on my wall in one of my in my living room to cover up the damp stain, but I'm still waiting to dry out. That is pretty, pretty, <laughs> and it's like pretty it's like. Sanitation. It's so funny. Yeah, it's so South Asian. It's amazing. And then like when people come around, they go, oh, I love that. And I just go, yeah, it's in case I forget I'm brown. Every time it gets to laugh. Why have I got that on my wall? It's so pretty. But like, what am I worried yeah. to happen? I forget my mom's from a small village in Punjab. Like what? <laughs> what? Yeah, so it's me wearing my Afro comb earrings. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then like the walls are just covered in pictures of my brown family. Like what? What? Where am I gonna? Anyway. Okay. So, ooh, what about advice. you, Esther? Advice for a younger me. Actually, I think now more than ever it's quite easy to do that little bit of extra research when you go for a job so now i've stopped applying for places where boards are all white like because i just think that as an organization it's cultures just not together um so yeah i think thinking really hard about the places you're applying for jobs because if you think it looks like it's a certain way and it comes across a certain way on its website or whatever, it doesn't reflect diversity or whatever, it's not hard to do certain things to say we are an inclusive organisation, we're trying to do better. Those statements are easily made, easily done, easily implemented. If they're not doing the basic work to do that, then as an organisation, do you think they're actually going to nurture and support you? Then possibly not. So I've I applied for a place recently um, and they explicitly state these things as part of their message, as part of their outlook, as part of their vision. I was interviewed by a really large panel of people, but it was a mixture of ages. It was a mixture of races. It was, I happen to know a mixture of LGBT. Um, they asked about people's pronouns. They were doing that work and it was a really simple thing in an interview to basically be they go through say what they were why they were part of it and also you know these are my pronouns and i think actually that's just acknowledging that there is a thing that is considered the norm but that's not what we we're about and just i think look at the places that you're working and you know if then that's the only place you've got to apply to what ask that question at interview because you always have that opportunity at interview to ask a question it's like oh okay you're this kind of organization how do you deal with these situations because i think your ability to know how you might be able to implement change whilst you're there or actually be accepted for who you are and work and be able to be given the space to do the work that you do the way you want to not as a complete you know maverick but within a culture and within a context i think you know that was what that would be my advice to any person of color who was trying to find a new role anyone who was kind of like you know what am i going to be comfortable in that that environment i think there are a couple of things you can do and that's probably the advice i'd give someone who was looking for a role somewhere was that a bit deep very good advice <laughs> very good advice do you want to hear my advice go jazz it's, it's always so like extreme uh the first would be to find your people find yes your network, find a group of people you can sit with and have a massive bitch about all the things that you hate about where you work, because there will be so many. And there'll be so many things that you love and there'll be so many things about the sector that you love and that'll be the reason that you work there. But there'll be so many things that happen where you need a safe space where you can be around the people who have experienced the same things and talk about it and laugh about it and have those people have your back. To look for those networks which is why we like to talk about the networks at the end of each episode so people get an idea of what is out there yeah, if they're not sure um do what a mediocre white man would do always always what live with unearned confidence 
yeah, just walk around with, do what I do. Like, I've not always been this confident. I just wander around, like, pretending I know the answer to everything, but also try and have, like, a dash of humbleness. I don't know, it doesn't really work. But <laughs> Yeah, but that's, like, that's the bit that isn't the unknown white man. That's, like, you know, that's the you. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the good part. from you is the humility, it, and then a... the the regard, fra- fragile, ah, you know, bravado. That's you know. Well, it's not but, bravado because I genuinely do think I'm incredible and amazing. You are incredible, but that's also after ten years of working, or, or over ten years of working in the sector, busting my ass and kind of realizing and like gaining that that knowledge and that experience that yeah people are going to have all these thoughts and these ideas but actually it's just through their lens they don't know your life they don't know what you've been through they aren't being you and a lot of the time they won't live in the skin that you live in they won't live in the body that you live in with the experiences that you have so they actually have no right to judge you and if they judge you harshly that's on them because if they were to lead with kindness then maybe they'd have an idea of where you came from and maybe they wouldn't be so harsh with their way of thinking or maybe they would try and decolonize their own brain and try and make a situation that is more inclusive inclusive and kind it's that when you start thinking you're the problem which we have all been bred to believe that we are the problem especially women to make themselves smaller but seriously what's the worst that can happen if you just stand up for yourself you might feel a little bit stupid sometimes but it will pass and at least you know you stood up for yourself if you do it once you can do it many many times um yeah walk around with unearned confidence um and if all else fails fuck them <laughs> go start your own business <laughs> well this is it i think both of us have seen the value in that whole kind of freelance space as well because then you have got that power to do the things you really want to do. Yeah, but I also love the job that I have because yeah, I get to work. Well, I get to work with old books, um, and I get to meet people who are really interested in research. But I don't have pressure in doing it, and I think that changes a lot for me personally. But that's also because. I need to keep on top of my mental health as well. So a lot of what I do work-wise and freelancing-wise is now it's all based around what I need as a person rather than what I think I should be doing. And I think if you base a lot of what your general, your life in general and what you need as a person, including work, then you're able to thrive a lot easier. And that includes like building those networks and not listening to those toxic people when they tell you bad things about yourself especially if they're older than you that's so rude like they should be being rude to a kid like if a kid came up to me it was like a 20 year old came up to me and was like i want to do this thing i would never be like rude enough to be like that's a dumb idea to do that in whatever microaggressive way that people have done it to me in the past or aggressively aggressively oh aggressively aggressively yeah Right, okay, I think we have tackled this beautifully, if I may say so. Um, Simon, big yourself up, where can people find you on the internet, what projects have you got going on? Oh yeah, so I've been having a a bit of a Twitter hiatus, but I'm kind of feeling my way back in, because I feel like in lockdown, it's not the time to be taking time off social media. What else is there to do? 
So you can find me on there at balloon, B-A-L-O-U-N. Um, and uh, yeah, at the moment, we're trying to work out a few things about what it's going to be like running a library after lockdown. Um, so uh, pretty busy with that for a while. But I think one of the things that we're really keen to look at as well, and something that I've been thinking about a lot is how to uh, create better pathways into our profession for yes. marginalised communities. Uh, and we're thinking about our uh, traineeships and our apprenticeship schemes and hopefully we'll have something to share a bit later in the year about that but at the moment uh, obviously we don't know what anything's going to be like uh, no. so hopefully we'll be able to do a bit more but yeah do feel free to follow me if you want to yeah. see what it's like. Are there any networks that you would like to big up? Anyone that you think people would um anyone from any underrepresented groups would uh, benefit from being part of or looking up at Museum Detox provide a really great support. I'm sure you mentioned them before. Ooh, ooh, not um, as much as we should have, to be honest. Yeah, they, <laughs> they are a great group to be part of. And I, I definitely recommend that because not only do they deal with people who work in museums, but also people who work in archives and, and libraries too. Um, and I know that SILIP, uh, which is the kind of, body that looks after people that work in the library sector they um they have a BAME network now and I think uh they set up probably about a year ago um so they've been trying to kind of provide some support to people who work in in the library sector as well so uh do look out for them they do good stuff too I wonder if we should set up a well-spoken tokens network oh yeah well this is it all the people we've had speaking with us uh, I think you're all honorary well-spoken tokens. Oh, thank you very much. But wouldn't it be nice to on, have guys. our listeners be like supporting each other in a in some kind of forum? Yeah, and I feel like if people send us things in and we don't necessarily know the answer, we'll probably reach out to our wonderful guests and collaborators yeah. and go, right, this is our advice from the wonderful Simon. <laughs> that is something that we'll have to discuss. Uh, and think about but if any of you listeners do have any questions or comments or concerns or if you just want to scream abuse at us we're used to that throw us a topic that you want us to talk about (laughs) get at us on twitter um, and our email address which is both in the uh, episode description and in our bio for well-spoken tokens um yeah i think that's it Thank you, Simon, for joining us this week. Thank and thank you, you, listeners, for listening to us again. Come back next week when we'll have another guest. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.